Let me pray for us as we uh, dig in this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its promises. We thank you for how it speaks to uh, dark and difficult places in our lives and shines the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Father, this morning we pray that you would help us to taste and see your goodness. May your spirit be at work in our hearts and minds. May we, uh, may we get a sense of and uh, relish in the depth and length and width and breadth of the love of Jesus Christ for us. And walk in strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning um, with a, a kind of serious and introspective question. And no, that's not a setup for a joke. Um, really want to ask a, a question that's, that's somewhat serious, somewhat introspective. So take another big sip of coffee and hang with me. I know it's hard on early Tuesday morning to do the work of self-examination spiritually. But think of this question for a minute. Have you ever experienced a season of spiritual weakness? It's the first discussion questions on your handout on the table. Have you ever experienced a season of spiritual weakness? Now, that can be uh, hard to diagnose. Hard to diagnose. By spiritual weakness, I mean some some way in which your heart and mind and life, while you are a believer, while you have trusted in Jesus Christ and stand secure in your salvation, some season in which your heart and mind and life feel distanced from the Lord, that you feel distanced from the Lord in some way, spiritual dryness, Another metaphor. It can be really hard to diagnose in yourself. Um, sometimes it's easier to see in other people a sense of spiritual weakness. So let me give you some possible symptoms. Um, you may be experiencing a season of spiritual weakness if uh, you are finding yourself passive towards the means of grace. The means of grace being God's word, and the sacraments that we enjoy in worship, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, the Word and the sacraments and prayer in particular. Prayer is one we're going to focus on a lot this morning. If you find yourself passive towards those things, simply not pursuing them as you experience them, not feeling altogether influenced by them, helped by them, not caring for them, a great deal. Maybe another symptom being withdrawal from Christian fellowship. Now, some of you here this morning would say, well, that's not me. I'm in the room. I'm trying to take advantage of the means of grace. I'm with other believers. This couldn't possibly be true of me that I'm in a season of spiritual weakness. Well, just because you show up doesn't mean your heart's engaged. Um, perhaps another symptom, lack of conviction about sin. You sin and simply don't 
feel it to be really significant or problematic. You're not struck with a, a spirit of remorse or grief. And you don't repent. You don't turn away from it and towards something new, new obedience. Perhaps there's a return, not just a sense of being apathetic or lacking conviction about sin, but maybe there's a return to an old habitual sin or the development of a new habitual sin. Some vice that you turn to for release or relief. Fear or anxiety. Doubt of God's promises. Doubt of sometimes theological concepts. Maybe even in dark moments, a real disdain for God or His Word or His people. Those are some symptoms of spiritual weakness. And if any of those resonate with you, or if you look in your past and you have experienced any of those things, I've got really good news. You're normal. You're totally normal. Listen to what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old British preacher from the mid-20th century, But Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his book, Spiritual Depression, he says, there is that teaching concerning the Christian life which gives the impression that once one has arrived at a decision or once one has been converted, that there are no more troubles, no more ripples on the sea of life, that everything is perfect and there are no problems whatsoever. Now, the simple answer to that view is that it is not Christianity. It is unnatural. It goes beyond the New Testament. It savors more of the stoic or psychological state produced by a cult rather than Christianity. And there is nothing which is more instructive and encouraging as you go through the Scriptures than to observe that the saints of God are subject to human frailties. They know grief and sorrow. They know what it is to feel lonely. They know what it is to be disappointed. Paul is writing in this passage, and yes, I'm going to read it in just a second. He's writing to people in this passage who are disappointed. He's writing to people who are in need, in a season of spiritual weakness, and in need of spiritual strength. Our passage begins in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, but the verse right before, verse 13, says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Paul's probably saying that because he senses that they're losing heart. He is suffering, and they are discouraged by it. If this great apostle and leader of the church is suffering for his faith, through Roman imprisonment and through shipwreck and all these various things, if he's suffering... What's to become of us? Is the love and power of God real if this great man is experiencing difficulty? And so Paul is is writing this passage, this incredibly beautiful, positive, powerful, strengthening passage to people who are in a season of spiritual weakness. And so let me read it for us. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word now to strengthen us. Father, where we are weak at present, where we become weak in the future, where we observe others in the midst of grief or pain or loss or dryness or distance or sin, we pray that the promises of this particular passage, the the promise of being filled with the fullness of God, of knowing and feeling the love of Jesus Christ for us in all of its breath. We pray that we would know that you are able to bring those things into our lives and make them true and make them real by your power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what does Paul do? What is his remedy? Um, Thinking about his audience, thinking about writing to people who are in a season of weakness What's his approach? What's his remedy to strengthen them? While spiritual weakness may be normal, it's not something that should be tolerated and just languished in. It needs to be cured. It needs to be brought. We need to bring ourselves out of it. We need to be brought out of it. And so how does Paul do it? What does Paul model for us as a way of drawing ourselves up out of weakness or drawing someone else up out of weakness? Well, three things. Number one, he gives us a practice to engage in. He gives us a practice to engage in. What's the practice? You can almost miss it if you're not careful. But what is, what is he doing in this passage? Call it out. He's praying. He's praying. The very first words are, for this reason, I bow my knees. We don't always have to bow our knees when we're praying. It's a sign of genuine, genuine pleading with the Lord. It's that physical posture is significant, but the most significant thing is that he's praying. He's praying. Prayer is the practice that we're called to engage in when we feel weak. Even when we don't feel weak, we're called to engage in it. Right? We're to pray without ceasing, but especially, especially when we ourselves or we sense another is far from the Lord, cold towards the Lord, apathetic towards God and his word and his people. It's prayer that Paul models for us as the practice that we're to pursue. Um, a few years ago, about, let's see, this is about six years ago, I was in a profound season of spiritual weakness. Um, 
life in lots of practical ways had fallen apart. I'd lost my job as a pastor. Um, my wife was in treatment for addiction. Um, my kids were incredibly young and therefore exhausting. <laughs> um, in a unique way, I was still attending the church uh, where I had lost my job. And so that was spiritually confusing in a way. Um, I didn't, I knew I was physically weak. I knew I was financially weak. I knew I was relationally weak. But I didn't know I was spiritually weak until I went and saw another pastor one day. And we were talking about my situation. And he asked me this question, which at first I thought was totally stupid. And afterwards, I realized it was incredibly profound. He asked me this question. He said, Matt, have you found it easy to pray? Have you found it easy to pray? And I've said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I have been praying. I don't think I have been taking advantage of that gift that God has given maybe in a few moments of desperation, but not regularly, not consistently. It was this diagnostic question that he asked that just shined light on this major void in my life in that time. I was failing to pray. Paul bows his knees. He bows his knees before the Father, and he prays. And this Prayer is filled with beauty. It's filled with strength. It's filled with incredible theological vocabulary and promise. And we, I, may not feel up to or able to pray this kind of prayer. But the most important thing is that we pray. That we Honestly, genuinely, regularly, and especially in seasons of need and weakness, cry out to our Heavenly Father. Cry out to Him. Whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever we are experiencing, we tell it to the Lord. Cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. And as a Heavenly Father, He has the power and He has the desire to act. Just as an earthly father, a good earthly father would have the ability and desire to help their child, so our heavenly father does. And he calls us to pray about those things. So the practice to engage in that Paul commends is prayer. Second, Paul gives us a person to focus on. And this he gives more language to. The, the reference to prayer is a little bit passing. Uh, the person he tells us to focus on is shot through this passage. Who does he tell us to focus on? Well, the temptation, if you're in a season of weakness, or really if you're just a human being waking up in the morning, the temptation is that the person you focus on is yourself. To think about, well, uh, to only be introspective sometimes. What do I need? What am I experiencing? How can I change? What do I need to do differently? Maybe 
woe is me. And Paul here, the things he's praying about and the one he's focusing on is not the detailed circumstances of his audience or the detailed circumstances of his life. The person he focuses on is the triune God. The things he calls to mind, the things he starts rehearsing and starts praying about are things about the triune God. Listen to some of the ways he does this. Verse 14, he bows his knees before the Father. Significant, the connection between prayer and Father. But he references God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He goes on in verse 16 at the end to talk about being strengthened with power through his Spirit. So the reference to the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, he talks about Jesus, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. At the end of verse 19, speaking about being filled with all the fullness of God. This is this beautiful Trinitarian language, praying to God the Father for God the Spirit to act by causing the love of God the Son, Jesus Christ, to fill us, to be known in us. When we are in need, when our circumstances are overwhelming or when our, 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 our spiritual life feels distracted and falling apart, it can be incredibly hard to focus on what we need to focus on, on God and His Word, and on prayer. It can be incredibly hard to focus on those things. Uh, this past weekend, my wife and I uh, watched the movie Free Solo. I don't know if any of you have heard of this movie. Uh, it's a documentary film by National Geographic about a, uh, a climber, um, a mountain climber named Alex Honnold. And it's about his climb, his ascent of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. El Capitan is a 3,500-foot, sheer, almost 90-degree face of granite. It's the tallest sheer face of granite in the world. Um, 3,500 feet is big. <laughs> the tallest building in Dallas is 900 feet. So triple, you know, three and a half times the size of the Bank of America building downtown. 3,500 feet is over half of a mile. And Alex, you know, many people have climbed El Capitan. Alex did it without a rope. No harness, no rope, nothing. So free soloing, I had heard of free climbing, which is basically you're climbing and you're harnessed in, but the harness and rope are basically there to catch you if you fall. That's free climbing. Um, free soloing is there's nothing. It's just you and the rock. And Alex was the first person to ever climb El Capitan in a free solo manner. Uh, the, the article in National Geographic in the, in the documentary film, they said only two people in history had ever even talked about the possibility of doing it. And he did it. And he spent the better part of two years the better part of two years as a professional climber, this isn't a hobbyist or a teenage kid just trying to do something. This is a professional climber, and he spent two years meticulously um, mapping out a specific route that climbers had 
repeated again and again and again on ropes. He wrote down every single handhold and foothold. He climbed the mountain repeatedly with ropes, practicing every maneuver um, and every detail. In one scene, he's, he's on there with a toothbrush, just scraping off a little bit of dust to make sure the next handhold will be secure. Um, it's incredible, incredible detail. And, and it's no spoiler alert. You know, they wouldn't show the movie if he failed. He succeeds. <laughs> he succeeds in this attempt. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's an absolutely incredible film, um, an incredible feat. And... At one point in the movie, they, they, they talk about his, his, in talking about his regimen for practicing, specifically on that mountain, but as well as others, his regimen for practicing um, was not just to, to know the mountain well, but it was so that when he actually climbed, when he actually went up and was without security, without a second chance, that any distractions, like a bird flying or the wind blowing or a drone overhead buzzing or a cameraman rappelling down to film him from the side, so that any distraction, any weariness physically would not become an obstacle so great that he couldn't overcome it by the instinct, the built-in instinct of what is the next move. What do I need to be doing? In a similar way, this passage kind of is building in instincts into us in our Christian lives to say, okay, if you are in a season of weakness for whatever reason, because of sin, because of suffering, because of grief, because of just the normal fluid up and down of the Christian life, if you're in a season of weakness, here are the instinctual things you must attend to, this practice of prayer. And in particular, focusing on the triune God and not on yourself. The temptation for Alex is to look at the drone or look at the camera or look down, right? And what he needs to do is keep on focusing on the next thing. What we need to do is keep on focusing on what is true about the triune God. So listen to some of the things Paul says are true about God the Father, Son, and Spirit in this passage. What does he say about God the Father? Verse 15, God the Father is the one from whom every heaven and every family in heaven on earth is named. Meaning God knows everything and God names and rules over everything and every one. Nothing is hidden. As Mark Davis likes to say, God can't learn anything. There is nothing, including whatever circumstance or weakness you're experiencing, there's nothing that's hidden from his sight. He knows everything. He's sovereign over everything. Verse 16, it says that the Father has riches of glory to grant to you. He has riches of gl glory. This is a word that Paul loves to use in Ephesians. He talks about riches and wealth of God in chapter 1, and again, he's not talking about material riches and material wealth, but the, the riches of his power, the abundance of his love and provision for us 
who are weak and needy. Of the Holy Spirit, in verse 16, the Holy Spirit, Paul says that the Spirit is the one who who is able to give power and able to strengthen us with power in our inner being. In our inner being. There is plenty that we have resources to do for our outer being. You know, we can, we can take care of our physical bodies. We can seek out shelter and warmth. We can care for ourselves externally in lots of ways, never completely, never perfectly, but in lots of ways we can care for what is on the outside. Only the Spirit can address what is within. And He has the power to do it. Only the Holy Spirit can can change a mind, change a heart, establish one in faith, in your inner being. And He has the power and ability and desire to do it. Verse 19 of, of Jesus Christ. He talks in verse 17 about Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Verse 18 about comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth, height, length, and depth of the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses knowledge. It sounds a little bit, you know, like Mr. Miyagi. We're supposed to know something that surpasses knowledge, right? Really? Well, we can't, uh, we can't fully comprehend the love of God, but we can apprehend it. We can't know it exhaustively, but we can know it in part, and that's real. It's inexhaustible. It surpasses knowledge, and yet the passage says that we can know it really and know it truly in such a way that we're filled by it. So Paul calls us to pray. He calls us to give attention to the triune God in these ways. And then lastly, real quick, he gives us a power to seek after. So a prayer to engage in, a person to focus on, and a power to seek after. Power is a, is a word Paul uses twice in this passage. Verse 16, he talks about the, the prayer to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Verse 20, he talks about the power at work within us. So there's a power that we seek after, and yet this power that also we're seeking after, even though it's within. Again, it sounds a little elusive, a little ephemeral. Um, What is the power that we need when we are weak? What is the power that we need as believers in our Christian life? The power is not change of circumstances. That's way too easy. Jesus cares about your change of circumstances. He cares and sympathizes with the sick and the afflicted and the oppressed. It's the reason he does miracles. It's the reason he teaches us to pray for our daily bread. But Paul here, in this ultimate sense, is not focused on, God, we pray for the the power to be delivered from this thing or be provided this thing. He prays for the power to Uh, uh, that is internal, a power that is within, a power that we need is the change of heart. We need to be changed in our hearts by the Spirit and given the fullness of the love of Jesus Christ. That's the power he's after. 
It's something in your inner being, verse 16, not outside, not circumstantial, not physical, not financial, something in your inner being. The powers that Christ would dwell in your hearts, verse 17. The powers that you would comprehend the love of Jesus Christ, verse 18. The powers that you would know the love of Jesus Christ, verse 19. That you would be filled with Jesus Christ, with the fullness of God. It's something within. As Christians, we don't know with our heads only. We don't know with our hearts only. It's always both. It's always the whole person. There's a story told. It's one of those kind of sermon illustrations that sounds a little bit too good to be true, but it's worth telling anyway. There's a story told that about 150 years ago, there were some um, archaeologists going through an old prison in Spain, uh, a prison that had been used during the Inquisition. And they happened upon a particular cell, and in the cell, they found uh, a skeleton still chained to a wall. So the bone on the floor, chained around the wrist and ankle, still chained to the wall. And at the bottom of the wall, there was this engraving. And it was a, almost like a compass map, but instead of north, south, east, west, West, the words were height, depth, width, and breadth. Height, depth, width, and breadth. And in the middle of those words was a cross. This prisoner, in the midst of affliction and real mistreatment for his faith, this prisoner had captured what Paul was expressing here in the end of Ephesians 3. That to know the love of Jesus Christ in its height and depth and breadth and width is not a matter of change of circumstance. The man died in prison. And it's not a matter of just the love of God in this kind of general, amorphous, uh, goodwill kind of way. We know the love of Jesus Christ for us by the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in the cross that we see God's love for us on display. It's through the cross that we receive the power that Paul's describing here. If we're going to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, if we're going to have strength with all the saints to to know the love of Jesus Christ, we have to know what he did on the cross. Him taking our sins and the sins of all of God's people on himself of his own volition, of his own free will, dying the death we all deserve to die in our place, paying for the curse of sin and the curse of death perfectly and permanently for us in his grace, and then rising again to new life, securing and establishing the way to God for all who would Believe the love of Christ is defined by the cross of Christ. If you have time this morning, look at the end of Ephesians or of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where, where Paul celebrates the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says he's going to go to Corinth and not preach anything except for the cross, because that's what they need, that's what's most essential. 
Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, I read from it earlier, he ends with this quote. He says, uh, the Christian life, after all, is a life. It is a power. It is an activity. That is the thing we so constantly tend to forget. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is not just a point of view. It is not just a teaching that we take up and try to put into practice. It is all that, but it is something infinitely more. The very essence of the Christian life, according to New Testament teaching everywhere, is that it is a mighty power that enters into us. It is a life, if you like, that is pulsating in us. It is an activity, an activity on the part of God. It is the life of God in the souls of men. That is what makes a Christian. That's the good news for us this morning, is that we can be delivered from spiritual weakness into spiritual strength by God giving life to us. By the life of God being in our souls as men. Some of us might think, and I often think, well, what Paul's saying, what Paul's doing, it's way too basic. It does not account for all the complexities of my circumstance today. Just to pray, just to think about the attributes of God the Father, Son, and Spirit, just to meditate on and believe in the cross, it's, it's almost childishly simple. Well, it is simple, but that's the beauty of it. It is simple. And at the end of our passage, God is able to make it work. He's able to do it. He's able to do it and more. And so let me just read this passage as we close and let you guys have some time for conversation. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to that power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these words and seal them on our hearts. Father, may the power and the love of Jesus Christ crucified fill us, sustain us, and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.